This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 145 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Zuber. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out, uh, iosremoteconf.com. Uh, go check it out. We're going to have an awesome online conference. Uh, we have two special guests this week. We have Dominic Jadoin. I, I don't know if I said that right. It's uh, Jodoin. Oh, awesome. And Emma Trimble. Hello. Uh, do the two of you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'll start. So, hi, everybody. My name is uh, Dominique Jodoin. I'm a customer support engineer for Travis CI. Before that, I was a software developer for close to 15 years, and I spent like the three last year of my software developer career doing mostly iPhone and Android development. And I'm living in beautiful Montreal, Canada. Hello, I'm Emma Trimble. I am part of the build infrastructure engineering team at Travis CI. And I'm coming from kind of chilly Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So we are going to be talking about Travis CI. I kind of want to talk a little bit about the origin. I remember when it came out, the big deal was put your open source projects on Travis CI. It's all free and awesome. And after a while, it seems that it's uh, gone on to become something that you can also for your private repositories and things like that hook it up so that it will run on you can pay to have it run against your other projects yeah it's about right we provide free support for open source projects right now and paid for private projects on github let's step back a little bit because in the ios world mac world continuous integration is some kind of pipe dream or like a myth like luke skywalker so what are we talking about with travis ci you can build and test your iOS projects on Travis CI. We provide to do this real, okay, I don't know if we can call them real, but it's actually virtual machine running on macOS, on Apple hardware, but on uh, macOS OS for sure. And uh, basically you can do pretty much all that you are doing locally, but in the cloud. Yeah, we run OSX VMs on uh, in a vSphere cluster on Mac hardware, server hardware, and Mac Pros, since the server hardware has been discontinued for some time at this point. We're looking at moving to those and just automatically run your builds or compile your project or run your tests against the simulator on there for, you know, nested virtualization, the iPhone simulator inside of the VM. For those who are listening, which I... I don't know how many, but for those who are listening that don't know what CI or continuous integration is at all, could you just do a, just a, like a really basic intro to what CI is? Sure. The basics of continuous integration is to have every change in the code tested 
automatically so that you can get quick feedback about this specific change. And this helps in software development where you can spot bugs like right away rather than waiting for the software to be deployed in production where you don't want your users to find bugs. So the way it works on Travis CI is that we're hooked with GitHub and we we receive a, a webhook every time you do a commit in your, repos- your repositories. And when we receive this commit on Travis CI, we check out your code. Uh, you provide uh, the steps you want to execute automatically to either compile and test your projects. And we run that script on our uh, VMs and we send you back a notification saying if your build has passed or has failed. So that's really the, the basic of it. So testing as fast as possible, every little change you made in your code so that you know right away if it's right or wrong. One other yeah, thing that I've seen with this, though, is that it also can test your build. So, uh, for example, it, usually you'll build your iOS app on your Mac, on, on the machine you're developing on, but I've also seen it where you run that as part of your continuous integration. And what that does is then any problems in compilation also will show up in the continuous integration and make that available so that people can see, hey, look, whatever you did, it broke the build, not just in the test, but also in its ability to ship at all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, one of the well-known problems that oh, works on my box because you dragged in something from the file system and it hard-coded a path on your machine, which wouldn't exist anywhere else. But you're running this on a build server and, it, oh, okay, it has no idea what user home jame is. It crashes, send you, sends you an email so your teammates don't download it and say, hey, you broke the build. And then they go back and forth like, well, it works on my box. And like, no, it doesn't. So this is a nice way to have a clean environment that everyone agrees you need to keep running. That is exactly what I was going to say uh, as part of the explanation is that the old works on my box conundrum. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to avoid any of that in the future and make sure that we have a standardized build platform every time that your build runs. I think we've made the case for continuous integration. I've seen people do other things with it, but for the most part, uh, you know, this is what we see. So how is Travis CI different from some of the other continuous integration solutions out there? From my point of view, it's hard to tell because I don't have that much knowledge about their infrastructures. Uh, I know Circle CI does support iOS projects, so it's hard to tell for other CI from my side, unfortunately. Uh, one thing that is noticeable about it, though, is a lot of companies tend to want to roll their own CI environment with Jenkins or something along those lines. And actually, before I, I did that for a time at the job that I was at prior to Travis, and it's really frustrating and it's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of small things. And it's definitely when one of your options is to roll it yourself. We try to make sure that we take care of all the hard work. And that's one of the nice things about hosted CI products in general, I guess, though. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm, I'm going to say it a little less diplomatically than you did, because I've used Jenkins at a past job as well. <laughs> um, and the past job that I worked at, you know, similar to most iOS developers, we weren't using Java, which is what uh, Jenkins is written in. So whenever we ran into an issue, it was a royal pain because it's like, oh, well, I don't understand the Java runtime environment. I don't understand, you know, some of the gotchas in Java code. I mean, sure, I can look at the code and kind of reason about what it does. But 
that's not my area of expertise and tracking down bugs is a real pain. The other thing is, is that my experience was with Ruby. And so there had to be some kind of bridge, you know, be it JRuby or, uh, you know, it spun up a different process with Ruby or whatever in order to run it. And anyway, it just had issues because I had to fix all those issues myself. And a lot of companies think, okay, well, you know, Jenkins or, you know, something else is it's cheaper because we're not paying for a service. But by the time I rolled all my time into it in order to make it what the company that I worked for wanted it to be, it would have been cheaper for them just to pay for a service like this and use it. You know, that's not to say that it can't be done and that it doesn't make sense for for anybody. But at the same time, it was a royal pain in the neck and it would run into memory bottlenecks. And it's like, oh, OK, so what I have to do is I have to go edit the start script and tell it to start with more memory and blah, 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 blah. And okay, now it needs more memory, but the machine doesn't actually have the memory. So now it's swapping and it's slow. And yeah, anyway, my experience has been with Jenkins and similar is that it's never exactly what you want. You're going to spend a lot of time customizing it to what you want. And in a lot of cases, it's written in a language that just isn't your core competency. And so it's actually easier and cheaper to call support on a product like Travis CI or Circle CI, which is the one I use, and say, hey, this is what I want. How do I do it? And have them say, okay, configure it like this, add these config files, tell us what versions you're using of this and this, and then it's done. Absolutely. I've been on teams that have integrated Jenkins successfully for iOS projects, but they've had dedicated teams and people Mm -hmm. that that's what they did. They kept that kind of thing going. And I'm sure Emma would attest that it's a lot of time-consuming stuff, and it's not the core of what you do. So, yeah, if you can offload that stuff, and especially for smaller shops where you don't want to have someone messing around with Jenkins as part of their job. Yeah, right. that, that's fair. Larger shops that can afford to have a specialized team run it, that makes sense. You guys are making me feel good because I'm not on a large team, and I'm, I'm the one that maintains our, our Jenkins setup. And uh, to be honest, it, it, it is a, a bit of a pain, and it's especially a pain to get set up, although I don't want to exaggerate it. I mean, it works pretty well. But the thing that I, I really like Travis CI for that I think kind of gets into its history is that I maintain a couple open source projects and I think it's really valuable that, you know, if somebody submits a pull request immediately before I ever even look at it. Travis has run the, has run a, a new build with that pull request and tells me if tests passed and if, you know, if anything broke weeds out bad pull requests really quickly. And it, and it also, uh, you know, makes me feel a little more confident that one that has come in is good. I'd like to know a little bit about how, so Travis has really, you know, it's kind of a big part of, of open source or, or is really involved with open source. And I'd like to know a little bit about that. Why is it that open source is important to Travis? I think it's maybe Dominic can comment a little bit more, but it's been a founding core concept or core priority of Travis, at least from what I've seen, to really be nice to the open source community. And the Travis product itself is, I think it's like 90% open source itself to some extent. And, you know, we we get the same support from other people, you know, other folks submitting a PR to our project. And then naturally the tests run on Travis. And then it's a nice thing in general for everyone to have. It's somewhat of a GitHub-like model of try to main ideal of the company is to provide that sort of support for the open source community. So if I have an open source project and I want to get it set up with Travis CI, what do I need to do? It's fairly easy. I can I can explain a little bit the process. So you, you type in your browser, the URL, travis-ci.org. 
and you sign in, there's a big, uh, if, if I remember well, green buttons that says sign in with GitHub. And once you're signed in, it, we will automatically, automatically synchronize your account on CI with your account on GitHub. And we will show, uh, your repositories that you have over at GitHub. And now you can just enable that project that we, we want to use on CI. And the next step, it's basically to push a new commit. Uh, we have some intelligence uh, where we try to find uh, the type of project you are uh, activating with us. So we'll try to detect if it's Ruby, Node.js, etc. And for when we we do that detection, uh, we try to run some basic uh, CI steps. Like for example, if you have a gem file, we're going to execute bundle. Uh, in the installation step. And afterward, if you have a rake file, we're going to run a rake test for uh, the testing step. So that's basically it. And if you want more fine-grained control on what your build does uh, on your project, you have the option, and it's something we recommend, is to create your own .travis.yaml files where you can specify anything you like in those steps, like we have uh, what we call the build life cycles, life cycle, sorry. And uh, for every step, you can execute the command you wish, any command you wish. Okay. And YAML is the Ruby-like configuration file, right? Correct. Yeah. And basically, just a quick note is that every step or command is basically what you would execute on a console, uh, I mean, in a terminal on your own machine. So it's not a, a specific language that you need to learn. Okay. What are some examples of commands? Does it, it just does it build out of the box if you have a, say, a library or an application? It should for uh, projects that are respecting kind of the, the, the standard way to configure and run and test, like, let's say, a Ruby project. Uh, but most of the time, yeah, it's the most uh, important step of your build, I would say, is like the install step where you can install your dependencies. And afterward, there's the script, what we call the script step, where you compile, if required, your project, and afterward, you test it. And we have, we have also the deploy step, where if you want, you can go the next level, which is con after continuous integration, which is con continuous deployment, where you would deploy every commit you make to your project. And so in that deploy section, you can specify where you want to deploy your software or application. So in the iOS world, how does deployment work with Travis CI? So right now we don't have tight integration with the iTunes Connect service, for example. I mean, like for other deployment provider we support, for example, Heroku or AWS, we have some special support where it's really easy to configure the deployment to those those hosting provider. But most of the time, how it works right now in uh, iOS is that you you issue the command, like you write the command in your .travis.yaml files, the same as you would do on the command line on your local machine. Most of our customers, I would say, are probably currently using Fastlane, which I think provides an easy way to upload your uh, iOS apps. Okay. So are the Fastlane tools installed with Travis CI? Yes, they are. Okay. We've been talking about a little bit more integration around the Fastlane program, but we're, there's still talks. Uh, <laughs> no word on that yet. The, the iOS portion of Travis is one of the, the newer, newer languages that we support. 
but we're working hard to make it better every day. One thing about Travis and, well, I guess continuous integration in general, but particularly Travis that I think is kind of cool is if you, for some reason, need to test your app or test your code on multiple versions of the OS or uh, multiple, you know, make sure it builds in multiple versions of Xcode or something like that, that's pretty easy to set up with uh, with Travis. So I'm curious to know a little bit about how that, you know, what you guys have to do on the back end to make sure that that, that all works. You've got to have lots of different versions of the of OS 10 and Xcode all installed in, in different virtual machines, I guess. Is that kind of a pain? A little bit. This is my area of specialty. We have a large number of different images and keeping them up to date is challenging at the moment. We're working on automating our image build pipeline right now to make sure that, say, a new version of Fastlane comes out, we can make sure that whatever image gets used for... So the images are determined specifically by Xcode version at the moment. So we have like 7.3 beta and then 7.2, 7.1. But they are once they're made, they're made. So when, say again, a new version of Fastlane or CocoaPods or something along those lines, a tool that a lot of people use very commonly comes out, we need to update those manually. And we're working on automating the image build process to the point where we can make sure that they get updated automatically every time that, say, like a new Xcode version comes out or whatever. But yeah, right now it's kind of a an effort to make sure that we have clean VM images that then, and we have an application that organizes those images for use by our workers. So you say, in the end, it ends up essentially the same sort of request as what is put in your Travis YAML gets sent all the way through. So for instance, you say, I want the Objective-C or Swift image for, with the Xcode 7.2, that pretty much that same value gets passed to our image organization tool. And then we can use that same tool to test our own images in staging to make sure that everything, all the, there's, there's nothing like really terribly wrong with the image before we deploy it to production and then promote it very easily using that sort of API organization in front of the image names and classifications on our end. It sounds to me like you are handling a lot of hard stuff that if you had to set it up yourself, you would not have fun with it. Yeah, I think we have a good 25, I think, build images that are, you know, very in, variously pointed to for different reasons or whatever. You know, some of them are just old images that have been superseded by a newer one, but haven't been removed yet, just in case if the newer one has some sort of major issue. But we, we try to follow a dev test you know, staging, production, promotion sort of uh, atmosphere and make sure that the images that we come out or that come out for production use are reliable and up to date. Yeah, that's it's definitely a, a solid value add being able to have the different versions of your dependencies, whether it's Xcode or CocoaPods, because whenever Xcode comes out with something something new, a new version, you know, you do the stance like, should we update it? Wait, is the, is the build server updated? What about CocoaPods? CocoaPods does a beta release and doesn't work or doesn't work with the old versions. So you end up doing quite a bit of a dance. So having that taken care of by people who are actually testing it and working through the quirks, that's that's valuable. Yeah. So what? So you, talk, you talked about Xcode, CocoaPods. What other type of parameters do you have in the in the, the VMs that you support? Like what would trigger a new 
new version? Right now, it's mostly driven by whatever is most needed. Uh, in the future, it would be nice to have a new image anytime that a new, so, you know, Fastlane, Xcode, CocoaPods. There are a couple of other applications that we uh, depend on for that, but we try to update them every couple of weeks at the moment, uh, depending on usage of the images and whatnot. It's sort of tough right now because we're trying to automate the process, but also trying to maintain the current thing. So it's it's very right now it's it's kind of support driven in in a way. So if I call up and say, why don't, why don't I have Xcode 12 yet? Then you'll go and make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Generally, like, Xcode versions are, are the number one thing I saw yesterday, that there's a new beta version of, of 7.3 that's released. So probably in the next couple of days that our 7.3 beta image will be upgraded to, I think it's beta 5 now. Okay, so you've got the Xcode beta versions. So if your team is up on those. Those are available. That's cool. Yeah, there are a few others, but those are the big ones that we try to get proactively. So I had a question. How, if you're doing, say, CocoaPods, how does Travis CI know to you know run that, that step? Is that in the YAML file, or how is that set up? So as I mentioned before, we try to come up with some default steps for the different languages we support. So in the case, and like the two main steps, as I said, were the install st installation step that is called install in the YAML file and the script test uh, step. So for uh, iOS projects, uh, we, we said like that pod install is the default installation step for these kind of projects. So under the hood, even if you don't specify an install uh, section in your YAML file, we will execute pod install at the root of your repository, which ordinarily is where your pod file is located. Okay, so if you're on a team that just puts all your CocoaPod files into source control and commits it that way, you'd want to turn this off. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So you, you can do this by actually overriding the install uh, section and do your own, uh, I mean, or just you can specify true to say just override the install uh, step on your build. Okay. Do you have any support um, now for, for the, some of the new Swift, open source Swift stuff now that people are developing libraries that are not necessarily, well, particularly libraries, but soon maybe web apps and things like that that are not necessarily iOS or Mac projects but are written in Swift? Have you started rolling that out or do you have plans for that? Things like the Swift build 